Welcome to the Crossroads Church Sermon Podcast. The following message is meant to help intersect your road with God's road. Crossroads Church gathers to discover God, grow in Him, and reach out to others. For more information, visit crossroadsstjames.life. I won't bore you with the history of Babylon's kings, uh, but in short, he's, you know, like I said, he's like kind of, he, he's technically the fifth, but he's kind of 4B uh, as he's a, a co-regent with his, with his dad. And maybe when we get to another story with Belshazzar in it, we'll kind of explain how that worked and some of the goofy things that have happened over time uh, concerning the belief of Belshazzar and the word of God. All right, so we have Daniel with a pretty spectacular dream and a vision. Uh, But before we get into this, I want to be really transparent with you. Um, We're about to see some end times prophecy today. This is where it kind of starts to kick off. And some of what Daniel's talking about, I mean, he's introducing stuff that, you know, you and I might know pretty well, uh, especially, you know, if you've been saved for a long time, you know Christ for a long time. Um, he, he's, he's starting to kick this off, and we're looking at end times prophecy, and though these writings are, are like a favorite of, of, of a lot of folks, and you know, a lot of people like, oh, let's read Revelation, let's, let's read some of these passages in Daniel and, and, and other parts of the Bible, and Thessalonians and Corinthians and stuff, let's, let's look at these and, and talk about the end times. A lot of people love to do that. It's, it makes for good movies, makes for good books, at least Tim LaHaye, I think, He's making some good money. Anyways, um, but it's, it's, it can be pretty exciting. Like I said, I want to be real transparent for you. This is actually not my favorite <laughs> writings within the Bible. Um, for me personally, it's not that I, I hate the Word of God. You all know that I love the Word of God, every, every single part of it. But you also know I was, I was a terrible, terrible, terrible literature student like we'd we'd read these books and you know the the teacher would say what is this foreshadowing I have no clue I don't know I I like to be surprised by the end of a book so I have no clue what this is foreshadowing leave me alone I want to I want to read it actually I don't want to read it I'm not a big fan of reading but but listen if you're going to make me read it at least let me be surprised I have no clue what the foreshadow what does this symbolize I have no clue I I don't I don't understand Let, let me read it and see if I can figure it out or just give me the answer if that's the case and so what happens is, is you read this stuff, and guess what? There's a lot of ambiguity to it. It's, there's a lot of symbolism, and guess what God doesn't do? Give us all the direct answers. So this is how it's going to work. And so I kind of read it, I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. That's amazing. But I don't know how that's going to happen. I don't know, I don't know what that's all about. And so, so I kind of, it's, I'm not good with, the, with those kinds of things. The other aspect is that there are so many, so many friends. I mean, we can, we can have our minds spin just all day long if we want to on the various perspectives, on the theologies that are out there for the end times. Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib post slash mid trip. I mean, there's, there's all different things. What in the world are you talking about, Pastor Dave? See, that's what I'm talking about. There's so much out there. There's a lot out there. There's a lot of different perspectives, uh, all, all sorts of stuff. And it's difficult to keep all of it compartmentalized and to be on top of it and be like, okay, this is what this theology believes. This is what this believes. This is what this is. And I'm, I'm telling, I'm going to be brutally honest with you. I'm, I'm a pastor in the assemblies of God. And literally they kind of just tell us, Here's the deal, guys. Just when you're preaching from your pulpits, just to show some continuity within the ministers, 
be premillennialism and pre-tribulation rapture. <laughs> just, just try to do that. I'm like, okay, I, I, I guess I can do that. Because really, it doesn't truly affect your salvation whenever Christ, you know, whenever God says, hey, Jesus, you get to go back now. I mean, we just need to know that Jesus exists and believe in him. And that's, that's kind of the big thing. So, so when it comes to this, you know, all this stuff, you know, when, when, when you look at all of it, unless it has already happened, everything that everybody talks to you, and listen, there are some really good guys that, are, that, that work with this and do really well with it. Listen, they're all hypotheses, okay? <laughs> they're all educated guesses. They've read the Bible. They see it. We see this in Daniel. We see this in Revelation. We see this in Thessalonians. So it's, it's, it's a lot of educated guesses. So when it comes to eschatology, which is the fancy word for end times theology, the study of the end times, we, we want to study as much of it as we want to. I want you guys to look into it, read those things, read those people. There's some great people out there. They're very good writers that understand a lot more than I do. But know that when when all is said and done, it's not whether we're right or wrong on how and what precisely happened, but whether or not we know Christ. We need to know Christ. And when we see these types of passages, when we see these words and those kinds of things, we definitely want to make sure that we know who Jesus Christ is and make sure that we understand the, the idea of, of, of salvation. Yes, we want to study it as it is the Word of God, and it will only help in our responsibility of the Great Commission. Just don't get overly hung up on how, when, and or what you think is exactly going to happen. Well, this is going to happen because this is what it says in the Word of God. Yeah, you'd be surprised. That's usually when God says, that's what you think. And then he changes it, right? He kind of flips it on a dime there. And so you see all these different things and and that's what happened. In fact, let me, let me show you really quick the end of this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. Look at that with me. Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. Daniel writes, here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. In other words, he's like, this kind of freaked me out, and I don't really know what's going on, but I'm just going to keep it in my heart. I'm going to see what the Lord does. And that's Daniel, a, a, an extremely powerful man of God. Amen? So, so if, if he feels that way and, and that's happened, listen, you can, you can sit there and be like, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work. I don't really know about that. I'm like Pastor Dave. I'm terrible with symbolism and, and all that kind of stuff. But all I know is that God is in charge of it. And if, if I will just put my faith and trust in him, it's, it's going to work out. It's, it's going to happen. And like I said, I mean, don't ignore it. Make sure you read it, kind of understand the times. The Bible does tell us that we should do that. Uh, but if we can't, you know, pinpoint what's going to happen, don't worry about it. Just know that God is working and he's going to, he's going to move. So we're going to break this little vision here into two parts. We'll read one half of the dream, its interpretation, and discuss it. And then we're going to look at the second part uh, on, the, on, on the second half of it. So the first part is absolutely amazing, to be brutally honest with you. It's an amazing prophecy. It is so amazing that those outside of the church who don't believe that Daniel actually wrote this, they, do, they don't believe it. They don't, they're like, this is too good. This is too spot on that Daniel did not write this. And what most of them believe is, in, the, in between the times of the Testaments, between Malachi and Matthew, sometime probably like in 100 BC, someone wrote this, 
and then stuck it in here and said, this would look really good if we made Daniel the one that said this. So, so they don't believe this. They believe it was written between those times of the Testament. Uh, those symbolism, it's symbolic and there's metaphoric language that's used. It seems just too, too correct for comfort. People who are outside of believing that the Bible is truth do not like this passage. Most of those that, uh, that take this position are fine with the prophecies about Jesus. Sure, go ahead. Prophesy about your Jesus and that he fulfilled, you know, 2,000 of them and there was, you know, a, a one in a gajillion chances that he would fulfill all the prophecies. That, that's fine. Whatever. We don't care. We don't care about the prophecies about Israel and how they fell as a nation and how those were all correct. None of that stuff cares. Why? Because we don't care about Israel. We really don't care about ancient history. But when you start knocking on the door of what we think we know of history, of world history, well, now, now you're stepping out of bounds. Now you're starting to, 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 to make this look like this is actual truth. And that's where people get stuck because they know, well, if that part is true, then guess what? The rest of it's probably true. And I'm in a whole lot of trouble because within the word of God, not only does it have these prophecies and, and, and these things that are fulfilled, but it has what? It has the way to God. It has the way to eternal life. It has the message that says, listen, we're all sinners in need of the grace and mercy of God. And to have to come to that truth and to have to come to that fact is very difficult for people to do. People would rather live in ignorance thinking that they'll be okay than face the fact that they are sinners that need the saving grace of the Almighty God. They've fallen for the lies of Satan, that they're all good. You're just fine. Don't worry about it. Nah, yeah, they, they probably didn't write that during the days of Daniel. It was probably later. You're fine. That's what Satan wants us to believe. But we need to stand firm and know that the entire word is true, that Daniel did write this, and God is just that good. God is that good because he's got it all in his hand. He understands what's going on. So let's take a look at the accuracy of this passage, starting at verse 2 of chapter 7. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man uh, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one, uh, on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in, in this horn were were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great 
things. So first, we have four beasts and the horns. We'll come back to verses 9 through 14 in a minute here, but uh, let's look at the interpretation of the beast and the horns in verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one, uh, one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Verse 19, Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up and before with uh, before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Abruptly stopped right there. Okay? So there we have it. Four beasts come up, and, and this is how it works. So let's let's talk about this. I'll try to make it kind of quick. Like I said, I'll get you out of here by four. All right. So first things first. If you, real, if you notice, this coincides with Nebuchadnezzar's statue dream back in chapter 2. Remember, he had a statue, four different metals. He had gold, silver, uh, middle, and arms, and then uh, waist, uh, bronze, and thighs of bronze, and then uh, legs, sorry, legs of iron with feet of iron and clay, representing four different empires. Um, so all the beasts, they come out of a great sea. Some think this is the Mediterranean Sea, as each of these empires' power extends to the Mediterranean. Personally, I think it's more symbolic and spiritual, as the sea often is a mystery to man, especially at the time of Daniel. You know, they, they weren't able to, to get in subs and scuba gear and look at stuff. You know, they just, it was just a mystery. It's like, I don't know what's going on underneath the water. This is, this is crazy. So I think it's more of a mystery for man. Each of the beasts comes from the sea. It doesn't go to the sea. So, so I don't think he's talking about the Mediterranean Sea. I think he's talking about a spiritual sea. The sea seems to be the depth of the mind of God, and he is the one that created all of this to happen. So to understand it, to look at it, the four winds is is very spiritual, often representing the Holy Spirit and those kinds of things. So he comes up, and there's this mysterious sea that swirls around, and then God starts bringing up these beasts one at a time uh, as as they come out of the water. Um, they had they had attributes uh, like an animal, but they weren't the exact animal. So so throughout this, if you noticed, he said it's like a lion, it's like a bear, it's like a leopard, and then it, it's it's an actual beast. And so he has these four different beasts. Um, but it's important that we see that they were attributes. They had these attributes, but they weren't the exact animal. This is actually going to be kind of important for the next part of the vision. So. The first one, like a lion with eagle's wings. Lion, what is he? The king of the jungle, right? And then the eagle is what? Technically has always been considered the king of the birds. You know, look at them. They're so big and and they're amazing and they're powerful. This represents Babylon, specifically Nebuchadnezzar. God gave him great authority as we talked in the past. He was pretty much God's right-hand man at the time of his power. Remember all that stuff? What did he tell Israel? What did he tell Judah? Listen. 
If you want to survive this thing, you're going to need to follow Nebuchadnezzar because he's my guy right now. This is who you need to follow. So, um, excuse me. He was pretty much God's right hand man, showing that that king of the jungle, that that authority that has the wings show not only power but an expanse of the rule. So it went beyond the city of Babylon and and the area around it. It went all the way out to the uh, to the Mediterranean. See, technically, it, it got really close to Egypt. He didn't completely overtake Egypt, but it gets down to Egypt and then it, it heads out east a little bit. But but he really covered an expanse of territory, kind of like an eagle would, as as it would fly. However. The wings of the eagle are clipped, and as it, as it comes to earth, uh, the beast is given two feet and a mind like a man. Now, like I said, a couple weeks ago, uh, we read in Daniel chapter 4 about Nebuchadnezzar. Anybody remember what happened? Nebuchadnezzar has this vision. He writes this chapter and says, listen, uh, you know, I was prideful, and God corrected me for my pride by turning me into what? Pretty much a beast, right? He he had hair all over his body. He was wet with the dew of the earth. His 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 claw, his his nails look like what? The claws of an eagle, right? That's what it says. It looked like the claws of an eagle. He looked like like a beast. So it's almost like when you see this vision, Daniel understands. Okay, so this beast comes up, wings are clipped, but it's given the feet of a man and the mind of a man. It's kind of, kind of like what happened with Nebuchadnezzar. So Daniel's probably thinking, this first beast is is probably Babylon, as as this is what I saw happen to Nebuchadnezzar during his time of insanity. So he had feathers, he had he had hair as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like that of an eagle's talons. Um, and then after a period of time, his sanity is given back to him, and he becomes like a man. Again, mind and feet and all that good stuff. So, number one, like a lion with eagle's wings, talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Number two, next, is like a bear. Large, ferocious, and devouring. Rawr, I'm a bear. Burr, 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 burr. I love bears. Bears seem really cool. I don't like the Chicago bears, but I like bears. So they come out, burr, 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 burr. And, and bears are... are <laughs> they're, they're freaky, are they not? Um, we, we went to... South Dakota and what is a bear country USA? Is that what it's called? That was fun. That was cute. Those they look like stuffed teddy bears just walking around. I should have put up some videos of it. Anyways, so but a bear typically is not like bear country USA. A bear will scare the living tar out of you. <laughs> I mean, they usually stand about nine feet tall. They're about you know five feet wide, and when they get up like this, well. I hope you had fun with the life that you had, because you're about to go down. So bears are very big. They're very devouring. They eat a lot of food. I mean, they're, they're large, ferocious, and they devour. This is seen as the empire of the Persian and the Medes, the Medo-Persian Empire. One side was raised up. This is possibly meaning that one aspect of the, of the empire was more powerful than the other. So first the, the Persians come, and they're more powerful than the Medes, but then the Medes come in, and then they become more powerful. So that's, that's what some folks think about that. But the three ribs in its mouth, now that's a big deal. The three ribs are a big deal, and most secular and biblical scholars attribute this to the three kingdoms this empire took over. They took over Babylon, they took over Egypt, and they took over Lydia, which is modern-day Turkey. So, again, 
way too accurate for some folks' comfort, right? Big old bear comes up. He's got three ribs in his mouth. Holy cow. That's pretty amazing. Next after this, we have the beast that's like a leopard with four bird wings. Again, wings symbolize the great expanse of this particular empire. This empire got big, and it, it, spread, uh, it spread throughout a, a large area. But then you have the leopard. What does the leopard show but speed? Not only did it expand, it expanded quickly. As far as most people are concerned, this probably represents Greece, specifically Alexander the Great. It is noted by many historians how quickly Alexander took over other nations, like no one before him. Like, he was fast. Like, it was like, boom, 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 boom. I'm making this happen, and I, I am great. That's why they call me Alexander the Great. And he just takes over, takes a large area. The Greek Empire was, was just, it was huge. I mean, it, it became the national or the world language, right? I mean, it was, it, was, it was absolutely powerful. It was absolutely huge. Here's the crazy thing. So what happens with this beast? What's, what's up with the leopard? It has four heads, right? Four heads coming from this leopard. After his death, Alexander's empire was distributed to four leaders, Cassander, Lysimachus, Lysimachus, I I tried to remember how they pronounced that, but now I don't remember, Seleucus and uh, Ptolemy, they were all given there. Once again, little too close for comfort to, to being correct. Holy cow, so you had this great expansive kingdom, and then you were given four leaders afterwards. Finally, you come to the last beast. The last beast is simply described as dreadful, terrifying. He has iron teeth. He has bronze claws. It destroys everything, stamps out everything that was left by the other beasts. This, of course, is considered Rome, especially with the iron teeth. Remember Nebuchadnezzar's statue at his legs. The last one was iron. Um, but, but they were extremely powerful. Rome took over everything, including all the areas the previous empires had. I mean, that, that was massive, and, and they did it just full-blown, hey, we're, we're taking it out. We're, we're in charge, and we're, we're going to make this happen, and, and they did. So, so you have those four beasts. Lion is Babylon, bear is uh, Medo-Persian, uh, leopard is Greece, and then the last one, we're pretty sure, is, is Rome. Things, however, get a little bit goofy with us when it comes to the ten horns. The ten horns like, wait, what's up with the ten horns? You can't break down the Roman Empire to ten Caesars, okay? This thing lasted like five, six centuries, and there's not like ten of them where they're like, well, there were these ten that were, that were really good or, or really powerful or really evil or whatever. So we're kind of left with these maybe symbolizing ten world leaders or nations through the course of time. Then there is that 11th horn that rises up, knocking out three of the original 10 horns, um, as, as we'll see in a minute here. Most are pretty confident that this 11th horn is the Antichrist. Uh, Daniel, at the time, didn't exactly understand this concept, as he was technically introducing it. <laughs> but what did it do? It bothered him. He was very uncomfortable seeing this. He's like, I, the, the, the beasts are freaking me out. These horns are freaking me out. And then that little horn with eyes, and uh, my translation says great things. Your version of the Bible may say blasphemies or something like that. It was, it was concerning to Daniel. 
So he looks at this, he sees this, and it's, it's very concerning, very uncomfortable. What I want to do really quick here is take a moment, fast forward, and let's experience a similar kind of uncomfortableness uh, as the Lord gave us word uh, similar to this in Revelation. Revelation chapter 13, starting at verse 1, says this, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And uh, to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled uh, as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that, uh, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. So, this is believed to be a greater spiritual description of the Antichrist and of his kind of his empire. Note that it is a beast with all the characteristics of the four beasts of Daniel's vision. You had the mention of the lion, you had the mention of the leopard, you had the mention of the bear. This would seem to indicate that the power and authority of this beast will be at least equal to, if not exceed, that of Babylon, that of the Medo-Persian, that of the Greek, and that of the Roman empires combined. This is going to be a super powerful guy, and no wonder... No wonder why Daniel was so concerned about this, as we kind of should be thinking about that and understanding that it's going to get a lot more evil before it gets really, really good. It's going to get really, really bad before it gets really, really good. So now that you're good and uncomfortable, let's loosen it up a little bit, okay? Uh, let's, let's look at what I feel is some mind-blowing stuff in the second part of this vision today. Maybe you won't think it's as mind-blowing, but let's see what happens. Before we read, uh, I would like you guys, who would like to, to take a gander of what Jesus' favorite title was for himself? Anybody remember what Jesus often called himself? Son of man. You have the notes. That doesn't count. It is son of man, though. (laughs) Son of man was Jesus' favorite title for himself. Maybe you've been taught through your Christian life that this title expressly showed the humanity of Jesus. God rubbing elbows with the sinners of this earth. He comes down. He's a man. 100% man. It's all good. By the time we're done with this, though, friends, it's not that we're going to put this thinking on its head, but what we're going to see is that the title Son of Man actually has more to do with Christ's divinity, and the title Son of God actually has more to do with his humanity. All right? So, first of all, let's talk about titles for a minute. First, the Hebrew language does not have a word for human being, that you won't find it. Instead, it has a term called Ben Adam, which means 
son of man. If you are an English-speaking person who knows Hebrew, if you came across this term while reading the Old Testament in its original Hebrew, a majority of the time you would think of this term simply as a human being with absolutely no divine aspects. Whenever you saw that term, Ben-Adam, as you're reading, right to left, by the way, as you're reading that Ben-Adam, okay, he's talking about a human being, talking about a person, you wouldn't even think about it, you wouldn't even think twice about it. So so Ben-Adam is what you've got. You don't have uh, anything super special about this. They don't have human beings, so this is what it was. Second, every single king of Israel and Judah, especially when the, when this, when the uh, kingdom got split, from Saul all the way to Jehoiachin, who uh, was anointed. I don't know if Zedekiah really was because he was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, but every single one of those kings in the northern and southern kingdom received the, an, an anointing. It was different. It was a different anointing from the priest, but it was similar in that it symbolized God's anointing upon that king. There was a specific title then given to the king for that anointing, and that term is Mashiach, which means anointed one. The English translation for this word is Messiah. Messiah, the anointed one. So guess what? Every single king in Judaism was known as a Messiah. They, that's what they would call them. This is Mashiach David. This is Mashiach Jehoiachin. This is Mashiach uh, Josiah. So it was a common term, uh, but you couldn't just get that term. You couldn't just say, hey, look, I'm a Mashiach. You know, I'm, I'm a Messiah. You had to be anointed as king of Israel in order to get that term in order for make it to happen. Uh, so the best of the bunch was David, of course, and so the Jews waited, and technically are still waiting, uh, for an even better Messiah that would bring them back to prominence, that would bring the nation of Israel back to power. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, Christos is the Greek translation for Mashiach, uh, then translated to Christ in English. So when we say Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Anointed One. Another title bestowed upon kings of Israel started at the time of Solomon. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, and 1 Chronicles chapter 7, 17, verse 13, God tells David that Solomon will be their next anointed king, and he says to them, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Beginning right then and there, the title Son of God became commonplace for kings of Israel and Judah. So not only were you a Mashiach, an anointed one, but because God had this special relationship with the kings of Israel, as soon as you became a king and as soon as you were old enough or whatever happened, then you also became technically a son of God, and you got to have that title also, And so it kind of became, quote-unquote, commonplace for them to receive this title. Now listen, divinity was not attached to either title. They were human beings with authority bestowed upon them, and they received the titles. It's not like God said, okay, you are now a son of God, you are divine, you are amazing, holy, perfect, and blah, blah, blah. That's not what happened. It's just a title of authority. You are a son of God, you are a Messiah, you are an anointed one. This is what it is because of who you are, because of the position that you hold. That is what it is. So 
when Jesus comes, he doesn't come out and declare himself Messiah or Son of God, partially because all sorts of false messiahs and sons of God were doing just that, trying to convince people of who they were, and partially because God calls everyone to a measure of faith, and that's what it took for people to believe that Jesus was the Son of Man, as we're about to see described in Daniel chapter 7. So look back at Daniel chapter 7, starting at verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened." I looked, and because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a reason, I'm sorry, for a season and a time. Verse 13, here we go. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So here we go, friends. The Ancient of Days is God the Father, but then this new being is introduced, one like a son of man with the clouds of heaven. Friends, this is really the first time that Ben-Adam was combined with divine attributes within Judaism. In Psalm 80, there's something kind of similar to this, but this is the real stuff right here. This is where Daniel... uh, issues this. This is really that first time that all of a sudden you see a human being having divine attributes, which was unheard of. In fact, it, it was illegal because you weren't allowed to have gods before you. You weren't allowed to have other gods. So in Judaism, they didn't do that. They didn't put divine attributes to, to human beings. In the Gentile world, it was actually pretty common, um, and kings often thought of themselves as gods. That wasn't the case. Again, that wasn't the case with Israel. So when Daniel throws this out there and says, I saw one like the Son of Man coming on like the clouds, and he stood next to the Ancient of Days, next to God the Father, and he was given all power, all dominion. Whoa. They knew that a king was coming. The Jews knew that a king was coming. But whoa, now he's, he's divine. He's, he's part of God. He is, he is God himself coming down. Whenever Daniel released this, whenever this happened to be, it quickly gained traction that not only were the Jews waiting for a, uh, for a king to rule everyone on this earth, but to bring an overall end to sin and death. He would be divine. They were waiting in great expectation for the Messiah, the Son of God, and now this new son of man that they had seen. So let's finish up with the interpretation before we close with with this last point of the son of man. Look at verse 21 with me. Verse 21 again. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. Similar, remember what we read in Revelation chapter 13, that happened. Until the ancient of days came, 
And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. Uh, but the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So you have the continuity of the horn in Daniel and the beast in Revelation being allowed to make war and prevail over the saints until God comes in and stops it. And then once he comes in and stops it, what ends up happening? Jesus comes to power, or this son of man comes to power, that kingdom happens, and then all the saints get to reign with him. So within the minds of the Judaism, they're not, the Jews, they're, they're not thinking about the Gentiles. They're totally thinking, by golly, that's going to be us. Because we're the chosen ones of God. We're the saints of God. The rest of these people are all going to hell in a handbasket, but we get to live because we're, we're, the, chosen one of, we're the chosen one of God. So at the time Daniel lets this loose and, and, and lets everybody know what's going on, that's the mindset. So we're waiting for this son of man. We're waiting for this divine person to come. And we as Jews are going to come the power and it's going to be awesome it's going to be great the rest of you you're out but we this is going to be amazing and this is going to be awesome it gained traction real fast and you can see throughout historical writings uh, uh, between the time of the testaments that this was this was a very strong belief it went from we're just waiting for a, a king to do some good stuff to we are waiting for for a member of the, the triune Godhead to come down and rule on this earth. So back to that title of the Son of Man. When Jesus used this title for himself, and he was doing nothing to overtake the Roman Empire, there is no wonder the Pharisees were ticked off at him and wanted him dead. You claim to be the Son of Man that Daniel talks about? You're supposed to take over that entire, that entire empire. You're supposed to take them out. You're supposed to wreck them. And then we get to be in power. How dare you use the title son of man when you're not doing anything against these Romans? We're sitting here. I mean, you're telling us to, to carry their armor. You're telling us to be obedient to them. You're telling us to do this, love your neighbor and all this stuff. What are you talking about? You need to get your rear end to Rome, and you need to start overtaking these people. And if you're not going to do it, you best shut your mouth, or we're going to kill you. And that's what's going on. So Jesus comes out and says, you will see the Son of Man lifted up. Just like Moses lifted up the snake, and everybody who looks on him will be healed. You want to talk about ticking off some people? That was ticking off some people. And we've talked about it before. Remember when Jesus comes in and, and, and the, the triumphal entry, they come up to him and they say, you need to tell your people to keep quiet and stop praising you. What does Jesus say to them? Listen, if they stop, the rocks and the trees will do it instead. Whew. Ticks them off again. And how about the whole... Guess what? You tear, this, you tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll rebuild it. You, you are a moron. 
There's no way that can happen. I mean, even in today, 2022, you ain't building a temple in three days. <laughs> Tick them off. So every time he uses this title, now understand, friends, understand, he's not doing this to tick them off. He's doing this for everybody to understand who he is. But it ticked them off. (laughs) And they didn't like it. They didn't want to hear the Son of Man stuff. Now listen, friends, Son of Man wasn't some secret code that only the smart Jews knew about, that only the Pharisees knew about. Ooh, he says Son of Man. I know what Son of Man is. These people don't understand what Son of Man is. Everybody understood what Son of Man was. Everybody got that. They, they, based, they, they understand this. But based on my study of this, listen, it seems like more people who were the false messiahs, the false sons of gods, they were more willing to use those other titles because they became so commonplace. Right? When you're naming every single king a son of God, when you're, when you're giving the title Messiah to each of these, no wonder Jesus doesn't come down and says, hey, look, I'm the Messiah. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm the son of God. He doesn't come down because all the false ones are saying that. And how is he going to be able to separate himself from the rest of them if he just used the same title that the rest of them do? So he doesn't come down. Now, the writers do. You know, Mark comes out, Mark chapter 1 automatically introduces him as the Son of God. But when it comes to Jesus, he comes down and doesn't do that. So when these other false messiahs, these other false sons of gods were doing this stuff during the time of Christ, why don't they ever use the Son of Man? Because they probably were thinking, listen, this was so commonplace and the people did it and no one was struck down for using that title. Son of Man? Nah, that might tick God off. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of faith that I am this Messiah that everybody's waiting for, but I'm not going to you know, use that title and, and end up dead <laughs> by the hand of God. So they would come out and easily say Messiah, Son of God. Jesus, though, knowing exactly who he was, comes out and says, listen, I'm the Son of Man. The Son of Man will be lifted up. When you see the Son of Man, as the Son of Man comes, as the Son of Man goes, As you see those phrases, friends, as you see those titles, you see the divinity of Jesus Christ. You see who he is. You see that he is the one that Daniel introduces to the world of Judaism, that the Jews grabbed onto and said, man, we are looking for this powerful king that's not only going to rule the earth, but but spiritual dominion. The problem was when he came the first time, All they wanted was to get out of the grips of Rome. And Jesus was saying what? Listen, Rome isn't your problem. The kingdom of darkness and hell, that's your problem. (laughs) You guys are jerks to each other. You're burying each other. You're you're tripping over each other. I've got to show you the way to freedom. And then we, of course, are are blessed enough to, to get all the other prophecies of the actual coming down to this earth and making war at Megiddo and taking out all these kings and those horns and and the big big horn and the big beast and, and seeing all of that stuff happen within the physical but at the same time all of it encapsulated within the spiritual and listen friends listen friends to those that would believe in the title of son of man for Jesus eternal life he waits awaits. Son of man. It's not just a term to describe Jesus' humanity. In fact, it's more of a term to show Jesus' divinity. And Daniel showed it to us right at the beginning there.
It's powerful. And it's, it's, it's interesting how God does that. In the middle of, of difficulty, in the middle of being in exile, I mean, they, they, that was literally like the halfway point of the 70 years. It was, it was, it was about year 35, I think. Um, it might have been a few years before that. But you're about midway point of this exile. Everybody's made themselves comfortable. You know, Jeremiah's gone. Ezekiel's gone. It's, it's, Daniel's pretty much the only one left. And he lays this bomb down as the Lord just opens it up and says, listen, you think, you think this is crazy now. You just wait. It keeps going. But the ancient of days, God the Father will come down, and he's going to judge it all, and he's going to make all of these things happen, and we're going to bring in this, this son of man, my actual son, who will come down, and he's going to whoop up on everybody, spiritually first, physically second. Stand with me today as we close up in a time of prayer. The Lord is good, amen? He's powerful. He's very, very powerful. And that prophecy is spot on. And if, if you want to hang with the, the liberal Bible scholars that don't think that was true, just, just be warned today that it's, it's not going to end good for those that want to declare the word of God to be false. I believe... 100% Daniel saw this, he prophesied it, and this is what happened. As I believe the rest of the words are true and powerful and give life. I pray that you make that same decision. I pray that you understand that title of Son of Man with Jesus Christ and how important it is, not just for the Jewish folks, but for us. But for us, he came down for all of us.